What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview is with Shana Summers, someone who I've been following in the space for a couple of years now. She's one of the rising stars, I think, in the community industry who's doing incredible work. She started off her career as a music therapist, using music to help people heal, working directly with kids in schools, and eventually switched up her career to become a community manager. And she was tasked with building the community from the ground up for a uh, app called Her, which was for LGBTQ dating, and they wanted to build community spaces for for their members to gather. So she built that from the ground up, a four million member app that she had to turn into a community. So pretty incredible journey. And in this episode, we talk all about how she launched that community, how she scaled up her moderation program, which was a really big priority for creating that safe and inclusive space across all these different subgroups that they had in their community. So she's one of the best experts I know today in how to build up moderation programs, which is incredible considering how long she's been working in the space. Today, she's at Next Music as their senior community manager and just someone who's filled with great knowledge and insights. Uh, There's so much good actionable stuff here for anyone who's launching a new community about how to get it off the ground and then how to distribute control to your community members to help you moderate and facilitate engagement in your community. Let's dive in. All right, Shana, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Of course, long time coming. I've been very excited to have you on the show for a while now. You've been a rising star in the community industry. It's been amazing to watch your journey over the last year, year and a half or so. Um, You've given talks at a few CMX summits now, and you're always one of our highest rated speakers. Just been wildly impressed watching you grow in, in this industry. So let's just kick off. If you could just share a little bit about your background, how you came to start building community and and who you are. Yeah, for sure. Um, and thank you. That's really cool to hear uh, with the Rising Star. And CMX was one of my first talks. So that's really cool. Also, that was my first like solo talk was at CMX Summit. So that was super fun. I'm very honored if, if we get to be the the kickoff point for someone like you. That's that's you were it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, we know how to find great talent. You, you know, know no casually. The recruiting system is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my background started with actually outside of the community space. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in music therapy, and I was a music therapist for five years before I transitioned into tech and working as a community manager. So as a music therapist, I worked with adolescents with emotional and behavior disorders, and then also kids and adults with different levels of developmental disabilities. And then while I was getting my master's degree, I ended up doing some volunteer work, fun side hustle type work with the Her app, which is the largest LGBTQ plus dating and social app. And this was before they had gotten to that stature of being the largest. And so they were just kicking off and I was writing blogs, helping with getting events on the app and doing some social media. And that got me to transition into the community space because then they hired me on full-time as their content and community manager. And within the first few months of me doing that job, I ended up launching an entire community. So it was a very quick spiral into the community world and how I was able to learn about it. It was definitely like trial by fire. And as we've gotten to the space, now I'm the senior community manager at Next Music. And I'm loving it. I'm loving this whole ride and uh, what we're doing. Amazing. So I don't know anything about music therapy. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So music therapy is utilizing music interventions to help people with different levels of abilities to accomplish their non-musical goals. So for example, with say you had a veteran that came back from war and they had been injured and they're learning how to retrain their gait. With that, I know that we're trying to get them to walk back at a normal pace. I'm going to create a music intervention that is going to help motivate them because music triggers different parts of your brain and is allowed allows your brain to create new connections that help you accomplish these goals. So while I can create a walking pattern that goes with this drum pattern and at the end the person needs to kick the drum, 
for a physical therapist, that's a great move. For an occupational therapist, that's a great move. And for a music therapist, I'm like, it's a motivator. It's a motivator to help this person be able to do this physical thing. But we also work on emotional and social and a myriad of other goals. And music therapists can work anywhere and with any age. Uh, So I worked at a school and a residential treatment center, but I have friends who work in hospitals, elderly facilities, daycares, things like that. So it's a whole range of things. But the most popular is with Kathy Gibbard, the senator who was shot, and she ended up using music therapy to help regain her speech, which is probably the most popular story that came around with music therapy. Yeah. How does that work? How does music therapy help someone regain their speech? Well, when you're going through and you're doing kind of like singing and pronunciation type tactics, um, one, it's helping regain the strength for you to be able to sing. Uh, You're getting that oral motor back and understanding like how to do different things. But also music, again, with the rewiring of the brain, it's like when that traumatic brain injury happens, your brain is not going to be able to go back to what it normally was. So now we're going to create new pathways and new neurological pathways, basically, for music to step in and help with that gap. And most of the time, you're going to remember a song. Like if I'm sitting with somebody who's older and I sing a song from their time, all of a sudden stories come flooding back and memories come flooding back. And it's the same thing with retraining yourself to speak. Start off with singing. And then you'll be able to start to build your words back. And yeah, that's kind of where that works. That's incredible. I guess that's why we put things like ABCs into song and things that we want kids to remember. Mm -hmm. You put into song, it's more memorable. And that can work much later in life when you're trying to build any sort of neural pathway or, or learn something new, basically. Yeah, it's a it's a magical it's a magical trade, honestly, and it's super fun. So does it work with like emotional trauma and like psychological trauma as well? Yeah. The main goals that I worked on were around social, emotional, and behavioral goals. So it was a lot of like understanding what emotions are, how to have appropriate social interactions, um, how to manage impulse control and be able to like successfully express yourself. So I did a lot of drum circles. I did a lot of lyric analysis. We did a lot of, you know, call and response playing to even like understand like, hey, if you hit on this drum really loud, does that represent you being angry or does that represent you being happy? Why? Let's break this down. Or the same thing with like breaking down lyrics and being able to understand like the words that are being put out in songs. Like if you actually sit and listen to songs, a lot of people don't, but if you actually sit and listen to lyrics and see what they point out and see what stories are there, then you can kind of break that down in an accessible way to show, you know, like, oh, this person is talking about like heartache and what this looks like. Do you think that this can carry over into like your relationship with your family and how that feels and why you explode on them or why you run away and things like that. So that was more of the goals that I worked on uh, rather than a lot of the physical things. I did that more with my kids with developmental disabilities, but my adolescents with emotional and behavior disorders, those were my bread and butter. I loved working with them. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I'm not paying attention to lyrics. I, I sing a song to my four month old to put him to sleep. And then when I actually started like paying attention to the lyrics, I realized it's all about death, <laughs> death cat for cutie song. And I was just like, Oh, well, it still kind of works. It's like going to sleep. Yep. Death, you know, kind of same thing. Yeah. When parents worry about like what their kids are listening to on the radio, I'm like, do you remember what you sang as lullabies to them as kids? Like, it's all messed up. It's all messed up. It's fine. <laughs> it's amazing. When you create music for someone who's to help them with a challenge like this, does everyone get like their own custom song or do you have like standard songs that you use? You definitely pick songs that are motivating to the person. Like I'm sure whatever you're listening to compared to whatever I listen to are very different. And if I were to do things to songs that you did, it may not be as motivating. It's different with groups. So typically you have people hopefully around the same age range or in that space and you pick songs that will fit for that group and you do the best that you can for those people. So when you're picking the group, you want to pick those people who are potentially going to have similar song taste um, or similar cognitive function or physical function and kind of build from there. But for the most part, it's a very individual experience and you're able to work with their song choices or their motivating factors. Obviously, there are plenty of popular songs that you can use for each of these. And the joys of pop songs is that they're all like four chords. So you can just 
switch in between each of them as you know which ones you're going to sing. So yeah, it's a it's overall it's a pretty individual experience. I, I want a song now. I want a Shana song. All right. <laughs> Help me with my anxiety. You gotta charge me for that now. That's what <laughs> Oh man. Okay. So I'll stop asking questions about that. That's fascinating, but we're here to talk about community. So what made you switch paths uh, into the world of community building? Yeah, it was one of those things where the opportunity just kind of presented itself. And I was already kind of doing the work in that space, kind of on the social media side. And once I was able to get in and see that like, hey, we're wanting to launch this space, one of the biggest motivating factors for me was that I was able to bring this large group of LGBTQ plus people together and just have them connect. And that's, you know, the prime definition of what being a community manager is, is providing spaces for people to connect over general interests. And I wanted to be that person. And so as I started to get into actually building the, my first community space and what that looked like, I continued to be like, this is awesome. Like, who else gets to sit here during their day and figure out techniques and strategies to bring people together? And then you get to just like sit and watch all of these new connections happen and all of the people just find love or friendship or groups to meet up with. And it's so cool because you're the person who helped do that. It's like a there's nothing better ongoing party planner without having to pause. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing better than than seeing that happen. I think that's what like keeps all of us as community builders going. Was that before her app or the her app community is what you're referring to? That was like my transition into the her community. And because when I joined her, they did not have a community space. So that was when I was like talking. I saw the joy in being able to talk to people via social media and started to join different like LGBTQ plus Facebook groups and kind of see how they were engaging and then going back and creating that space for her. And that was... Once I did it the first time, it was kind of like, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. This is awesome. Yeah. I feel like a lot of almost all community professionals started doing something. We're doing something else before they started building community. And then they started building community. And they're like, oh, shit, I can get paid for this. This is a job. This is dope. Right? Like, this is great. That's it. I remember my first community manager. I was like, I can't believe this could actually be a, a job or career. And this is 11 years ago is way before it was actually a job or a career. I was like, I think this could be. And, and it was just very exciting because it's what, you know, that's the best, it's the best joy, like bringing people together and seeing those connections form and seeing people find a space that they've been looking for that you created is, there's nothing more rewarding than that. That's awesome. Do you find that you're able to bring in elements of music therapy into your work building community? All the time. I think that was one of the main reasons why I was actually successful in starting. And it's mainly because of the ways that I engage with people. So I was so used to different formats of communication and how I was working with people along all different lines of the spectrum, uh, whether they were, you know, neurodiverse or whether they were recovering from any sort of issue, or if it was just like general upsetness, you know, you're working with parents all the time and parents are a whole different breed. And you're working with uh, the state or you're working with your boss and establishing where progress needs to be made, but you're also working with kids with huge personalities that can't regulate as well. So being able to find those different ways to communicate with kids, with parents, with your bosses, and you're implementing therapeutic practices in that space. So you're putting those frameworks to work as well. And taking that into the community space, because you're continuing to do the same thing. You're dealing with people from all different parts of the world. You're dealing with people at all different ages, and they have different needs and wants, and you have to be able to address them. And I think that was a thing that helped was understanding language ahead of time, knowing what was going to teeter the community in either way of loving you or hating you um, and being able to be confident in going and speaking with different groups of people on a regular basis, which was probably the most fun for me. And I think with my music therapy background and having to take more therapeutic focused classes and actually implementing them very quickly, I think that helped. Is there like a practical tip or lesson that you've brought with you from music therapy that other community professionals can learn from that they could apply to their own communities? 
Yeah, I think the art of listening is probably one of the best ones. You want to jump in with your ideas and the things that you're thinking about very quickly. And I think that's where people fall flat. One of the things I just read in the Get Together book was how communities fall into building for someone rather than building with. And building with involves listening. And I think that was one of the number one things of like, I can sit and listen, actively take notes, repeat it back to the person to say, did I understand that correctly? This is what ABC is what you're after. And that shows them that like, yes, you are actively listening to what I'm saying. My ideas have been made clear. I feel confident that you're going to be able to take this moving forward. Even if I can't implement it immediately, they know that what they've shared has been put forth to whoever needs to hear it and that they have been understood. And I think that is one of the biggest things that we can do is figuring out strategies to actively listen and then put an action behind it. Love that. And great book, Get Together. Kevin's been on the podcast as well. Love that team. Yeah, I heard that episode. It was so good. Thanks. Yeah. And yeah, I, I love that's like their core message, right? It's like build with, not build for. And frankly, like we've even experienced that with the CMX community recently, where it's like we've been around for a long time. It's a mature community. The community needs are going to change. And you have to constantly be listening and talking to them to identify that. Or without meaning to, you'll end up building for instead of with because their change, their needs have changed. And you just haven't become aware of that because you're so used to building and you can, you can lose sight of it. Mm-hmm. So you came into her and they didn't have a community yet. And so it was a dating app, right? Primarily. And then, and then you, you came in to build the community experience around that uh, and alongside it. So I'm sure you put a lot of that practice into use of listening to people. What was it like launching that community? What was your process for doing that? Stressful. It was stressful. I mean, you're coming in as like a very rookie green community person (laughs) and trying to build out this space for an audience of at the time when we launched it, I think we had over 4 million people using the product at that time as well. So there was a lot of pressure to say... All audience. Yeah, you know, casual. Just casual number uh, that we're throwing in there and wanted to be sure that it was done correctly. There are so many things now that I have the knowledge and understanding of what to do with the community that I would look back on and be like, never do, don't do that ever. Please, please never do what I did. What was like the one or two things that you look back now and you're like, never do that again? Never do it again. Yeah. And I almost did it again at my new job. And one is do not expect to have your entire strategy. Perfect. It's going to change almost every step of the way. Have your vision and make it like clear of what you're going to accomplish and be like, here are first steps and here are what the next steps are. And then build off of that. I think the perfection piece will slow you down so much. And then your boss questions why you haven't done anything. And you're like, because I've been doing all of this research. And it's like, well, research doesn't turn into action. Find something actionable would be definitely first thing. And then the next thing that I think I waited a bit too long for was to actually go into these spaces, like go into the spaces that you want to be early. And a lot of the initial conversations I had, you're always going to start with your close friends who use the product and you know that's your safe spot to talk to those people. It took a minute for me to be able to say like, you know what, I'm going to take these two hours today and I'm just going to go over to this like queer bookshop that I know about and I'm just going to randomly ask people questions. Like that's a terrifying thing to do. But I went out and started asking people. I was at bars just like, hey, like not being creepy, just literally wanting to have a conversation with you <laughs> about XYZ or be like, hey, do you happen to use this app? Can I ask you like, five questions about it. And then I'll get you a drink if you want one or just like, thanks, I'll give you free premium or anything like that. Like it was, it was almost like I was dating for my community. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Are you hitting on me? No, I'm just doing uh, community research. Right? I'm just doing some like active research. I was like, we live in the Bay area. You're here. We got to do it. And it's such a Bay Area problem. That's like, it. Like, like we're gonna, I'm going to come out and I'm going to go to a gay bar without like getting interviewed for a, for an app. Nope. They can't. They can't do it. They knew where our hotspots were too. Like it got to a point where some people knew me as the girl from her. And I was just like, yep, that's me coming here to ask you questions. Or they'd say like, hey, I mentioned that thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's coming. Like I'd have to remember it all the time. So that sets you up for those things too. So definitely don't feel like you have to have your strategy be perfect and completely done and get out there and basically 
speed date your community, but not in a creepy way. <laughs> Love it. So you did your research, you put together your strategy, you probably were too perfectionist about it, but eventually you got moving on it. So yeah, 4 million person user base. What did that look like from the community perspective? Did you just like open it up to all 4 million right away? Or did you like gradually do it? Did you have it for, I know you have lots of different subgroups within the community now. Was it subgroups from day one or did you just have one group? How, how did you kind of begin to put it together and then scale it up? Yeah, I was like adding to more things that I would have done better were one, we definitely had a small group of people that came in first and helped to seed some content into the community, but it definitely was not enough. So I wish we had only done it to a small group of people or like three shifts, I believe, in my opinion, would have worked. Like we could have had that first round of people go in and fill stuff, a second round, and then third before we launched. And I wish we had done more of that. We kind of set up the first three things. And as soon as we put in a few posts in each of the spaces, because we immediately opened it to everyone, it just got lost. So nobody could see what was good. Like we were like, oh, we had so many hopes for great content coming in because we seeded a little bit. We definitely needed more. And another thing that I would say was a mistake was that we did not start our moderation like immediately, which was a problem. We had people ready, but we didn't have like everything needed to make sure that we could do stuff. So it was definitely taking off quickly within those first couple of weeks before stuff calmed down. But I was definitely spending a ton of time in there moving stuff and deleting things and trying to get things places, but we had no alerts that told people we moved their content. So they were just doing the same behavior. And we had no way to kind of like fully announce to people what was happening. We also opened up one of the group spaces. So all of the group spaces were available. But one of the group spaces that we had the idea was going to be like the her space immediately because of the behavior that the community used to be before. Before the community was just one long thread. Nobody was watching it. Nobody was really paying attention to it. So when we had the top of the list and the first thing on the list was like the her space, basically, everybody just went in there and continued to treat it with the same behavior. And we did not expect that beforehand. Like in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. So then we had to close that community off, move everything out of there and actually make it just a space for like her announcements and updates and her content and then move it all. Because you wanted people to participate in the yeah. subgroups, not in this like generalist space. Yeah, like we wanted to be able to have it easy for them to see what was happening at her, but engage in each of these other spaces. Right. What were some of the subgroups that you had? How many were there? We started off with 12, and then we quickly grew to 18. And then by the time I left, we were close to 30. And we started off with like a strong and single group. We had a relationships unfiltered group. We had a 40 and over group. We had queer women of color, sports talk, artists, musicians, and creators, a recipes and foodies group. Um, so it was very like topic based on what we kind of saw from social media or what we saw in other Facebook groups. And we kind of dove in on those 12 first, where we were like, we need to have a dating space. We need to have a space for people in relationships to feel welcome. And we need a space for our black and brown women of color in there. And then we also created trans spaces as well. So we had a trans woman in one and we had a trans men one. And those were very important to make sure that like we were recognizing that they deserve safe spaces and then kind of grow off of the interest-based topics as well. So it was based on kind of the key groups within the community that you identify that would need safe spaces, as well as like the top topics that you saw people already talking about. So you already had communities in like Facebook groups or like some sounds like more like kind of ad hoc casual communities. And this was like more of a formalized community space that you created. Is that right? Yeah. So her didn't have any specific Facebook groups by any means. We just joined like a lesbian single group or um, a local like LA-based queer group and things like that, because those were, we knew that that was our audience. Those were the people that we were going to try and drive to come into her and join these spaces. And so we just joined them because we were like, this is, these are the people that we see on the app, but how are they engaging these actual social groups? Because we don't have that on the app. So that was our research to go there. So it's super interesting because her as a whole is already a space that's 
built to, you know, give queer people, uh, you know, a safe space to interact and to date and to be a part of this community. So it's as a whole already focused on an underrepresented group and creating that safe space. And then you identified that trans people within that community, like you, you still had an opportunity to create more inclusion and create even more dedicated spaces within that. Yeah, that was a key driver for us, especially because it's crazy, like the internal phobia, homophobia that you feel within these spaces. And you want to be sure that the messaging is clear, that we support these groups. They are welcome here and they should have safe spaces for them to engage with each other and for others to educate themselves. And so we wanted to make that clear by having those community spaces. And then nobody could really question it because we did have times where people were like, are these groups and identities allowed in the app. And we were like, this is a way for us to make that statement loud and clear. What did you do initially when you're kicking off those spaces specifically for the trans groups to make sure that they were safe and inclusive and, and earn that trust from the ground up? Yeah, we definitely reached out to a few people who we knew had those gender identities to let them know that the space was available and to come in and engage. We immediately had moderators for those spaces. So while we started off with a small but mighty group of moderators, we definitely had trans people in those groups and in those spaces. We had to move in some people who didn't identify there, but their partners were trans or they were allies to it and made sure that they were there and basically took nobody's shit. Like we were, we were moving things out. We were kicking people out. We held it down. And anytime there were any questions or concerns, we made sure to quickly be in there and respond as well. So we wanted to be sure that they knew that somebody was watching and was making sure that the space did stay safe. And as it grew, they were able to handle themselves in that way as well. So we didn't have to always be in there watching and kind of like babysitting those groups. They were able to independently feel that we know we're supposed to be here and anybody who comes in here knows that they're against the community guidelines and should not be a part of the space. Right. And I imagine you had some pretty clear, concise guidelines about what was allowed or not allowed. Yes, absolutely. It broke down into here are the things that we want to see, here are the things we don't want to see. Very, very clear zero tolerance policy against all phobias and actions that we take and letting people know that there are moderators within the community. As the years continued, people started to know our moderators by name, which was really great, and knew who they could tag to help deal with any situations. And I think that feeling of safety is the best that we could provide them. And so you said when you first launched, the moderator program wasn't really established yet. Were you just moderating and managing that for those first 12 groups or did you have some moderators and it just wasn't super structured yet? The latter, yeah. I had I was doing majority of the moderation. Um, we had a remote team that was also helping. They were doing some of our customer support stuff as well as going in and just behind the scenes deleting and reporting people. Then we started to quickly, and then we had our small but mighty group of 12 moderators that had previously helped with moderation, but we didn't actually have any tools or anything for them before we did the rebrand and the launch of the community. So I had brought those 12 on and figured out our first tools very quickly. We were like, all right, we need stuff to move things. We need to delete stuff. We need to be able to block people instantly. So we quickly got those tools out to those 12 and got their feedback, improved upon it as quickly as we could, and then quickly realized, hey, we need to build out this program. So we went from 12 to 18, and then we did 18 to around 26-ish. And then I think within three months of that, because we launched the community and the moderator program around July of that year. And then by August, I had, no, August, September, I had upped it to about 75 moderators. It was crazy. That whole month was just interviewing, onboarding, interviewing, onboarding. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, how do you find moderators? Are people applying to join or are you seeking them out? It was a mix of both. I think we definitely had to do more work on the ground of people who were just showing up in the community space. We had daily prompts to engage in the community. And so that was where I first went, was to see who are some of these people who are answering to every one of these prompts. And then what communities are they also engaging in? But we did have a couple of surveys that went out where people could go and fill out 
answers to questions and scenarios to say, how would you handle this? What would this look like? What would be your first few steps? And it was a very quick survey. I think it was just like, you know, who you are, where you're from, and then three questions. And that can already weed out a ton of people because if they can't take the time to fill out three questions, you don't need to take the time to go and interview them. So that was a key as well. And once we did that, I also was able to bring in some of the moderators who had like started from the beginning and say, hey, would you all be open to doing some of these interviews and helping with the process? I will take majority of it, but I had moderators, especially since they're not being paid. I was like, I don't want to take too much advantage of you. And they were able to do it too. But this also set them up for success in the future when I said, hey, now you need to build your own team. I'm not doing any more recruiting, but you know how to do this. Mm-hmm. And that set them up for success. Okay, so eventually you allowed, is there like a lead for each group? Mm -hmm. And they could essentially bring on more moderators and interview them themselves? Yep, that is exactly it. So what do you look for in an interview to tell you if someone's going to be a good moderator or not? Uh, One that I look for is that they're looking to build community and not to build their own ego or brand or anything like that. There's very clear language tells that you could say they're like they say they say items where it shows that they want to give outwardly and so they're saying you know i want to give back i want to be more in this space i'm seeing xyz i wish i could help these types of phrases that are like helpful actionable and just like show a genuine concern for the community are people that i look for anybody else who's just like yeah like, this looks like it'll look good on my resume, or I'll be around for a bit. I'm jobless right now, so I'm hoping that this will just, like, lead to a job. Things that are, like, mm-hmm. more beneficial for them, those are the people that we don't want. Got it. And I always love the people who are like, I already have friends on here. I want to make sure that, like, this space is great for them. That came up the most, and I would be like, yep, so you're a person. You're a person that I'm going to like. That's awesome. And so you would teach, eventually you started teaching your moderators to look for those signals in those interviews. And so then did did you like create a training for those group leads on how to interview and how to build their team? Yes, we had a running video of a how-to training for each of our moderators. And we have a big Notion page that I built out for them that explained here are the things to look for. Here are some example questions that you can ask. Here are some scenario situations. And here's what an interview can look like. And I would always make sure to say, like, don't take more than 30 minutes. Make sure you're just amplifying this. Don't stress if it only takes 15 minutes. Sometimes you just find the right person and it's okay. Um, and then, yeah, it was just, it was a full page, full page of breakdowns from what it looks like to interview, to get them through onboarding and the timings, what you need to show them and what they need to make sure that they 100% understand. Right. So that was kind of how we broke it down. And I imagine that was something like a living document that you probably started with some simple stuff and then just keep adding to it over time. You didn't get it perfect right away. Absolutely not. Nope. Yeah. There's nothing that I have done building community that I have gotten perfect right away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think anyone has. If they have, it's it's lucky. Do you provide that same kind of training to moderators or how do you train up the moderators on how to actually moderate the community? Yeah, so a lot of that happens during onboarding. And then every month we had a full moderator meetup. And so I would host two different meetings in two different time zones because we have moderators all over the world. And we would go through any of the top changes that happened in the app, what future changes were coming, and then talk through any tough scenarios that they've had. But we also had a running Facebook group that was just for her moderators. And I would post tips and tricks during the week. I would answer questions that they had as the senior moderators started to grow and become more skillful and knowledgeable. I started to leave it to them because it did get to a point where they would tag me for everything. And I would say, hey, this person actually knows the answer. Actually, this person might know more than I do in this space. And give them that power. So it was definitely a mix of here are the documents you have to train yourself. Here's what we're going to discuss in the Facebook group. And then here's what we're going to review every month in these meetings. Why did you choose to use a Facebook group instead of just having your a dedicated space within your community out of curiosity? Yeah, Facebook just had more tools than what we could build. So our community inside her was native. So everything that we had to build out was from our engineering team. And 
it took a bit more of a process to get things built inside of the app than I would like. And so Facebook just had the availability and everybody was already on Facebook. I think I only had two moderators who had to active reactivate their profiles again to join the group. And so just based off of the tools, we had tried them in Slack before. It was just another app for them to download, would kind of watch it, but not really. And so Facebook, we ended up voting and they were like, let's do it on Facebook. So we did that. Did you ever have to remove a moderator? Multiple times. Yes. There was one moderator came on and had ulterior motive to come in and ruin her ex's profile. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) And just full experience. (laughs) It was was so funny. And I was just like, wow. Like, I knew this was going to happen. But then I watched it and I could go and find kind of the history where this person's ex made like three different profiles and she found them every single time because you could report them immediately and they would automatically be suspended. And then she would send a message like, you're out. Like, I got you again. You're cheating. You're lying. Blah, blah, blah. And kick him out. And so when I messaged her and said, hey, you know what you did? (laughs) And she's like, yeah, I get it. I'll be I'll be off the app. Like, thanks. And, like, she took it well. Like, it was really funny because I'm like, at least you know what you did. Like, yeah. thank you for admitting that. <laughs> wow. That explains why in your moderator interview process, you started asking about, uh, do you have any significant others with any beef in the community that you're trying to get right. revenge on? <laughs> it would be made very clear. Like, you cannot target people <laughs> because if you do, this is what will happen. And yeah, it was... It was hilarious. That was, I think that was the only rogue girlfriend, like ex-girlfriend one that we had to deal with. Otherwise, there were some people who did not engage with the community well. Uh, There would be a lot of heated conversations in the community around politics or interests or, you know, just lots of biphobia or transphobia and people's comments. And some people would take that personally. And so we'd have to do a lot of training around the fact that you can't take things personally. They're not talking to you. They may be talking about something that resonates with you, but this is your job is to like be outside in, in your responses. And sometimes I had some moderators go off the tongue and I was like, look, I get it. I understand. This person has been bothering you for like days. They're not going anywhere. I understand that. But your next step is to bring me in so that they know that somebody from headquarters is in here doing stuff. And so sometimes we'd have to have those conversations and I've only had to kick a few people out because they took that too far. But again, these were open conversations. Like the moderators, while we also had community guidelines, we had moderator guidelines. So they knew that they had to follow that as well. And it would be very easy for me to say, you broke this guideline doing this thing. This is why you're being removed. So there was never anything personal around it either. Right. That's great. I'm curious, how did you handle in this last year, especially uh, a lot of political turmoil and a lot of communities face this decision of how much do we allow politics in our community? A lot of communities would try to say like, well, this isn't a space for politics to which a lot would respond. Well, like things like systemic racism isn't politics. It's (laughs) an actual issue that we're trying to solve here. So where was that line for you in the her community and how did you moderate that? We just ended up opening up a political space. We put a community in that was about like activism and politics and something else. And we just pushed all of that content there. We knew that for some spaces, especially in, you know, the communities where you were there to date or you were just there to talk about sports or you were just there to talk about any anything that is of interest, it didn't always need to be there. But in our more general communities where it was like our 40 and over community, our queer women of color community, location-based communities, sometimes you just have to let those conversations happen and then also let them know that there is a new community for them that they can go and discuss these policies. But we always allowed Black Lives Matter conversations. We always allowed systemic racism conversations happen. These are things that fit their identity and want to have conversations about it, we would definitely tag in to make sure like, hey, we see where this conversation is going. We want to remind you all of the guidelines. So far, you're doing great. But please make sure that as this continues to continue doing that, like we would always drop in and make sure it was known. And we would put we put verbiage out very quickly, especially uh, at the beginning of June when everything kind of like sparked back up again, that we made our voices very clear in where we stood and why we're allowing these conversations because we do have conservative 
LGBTQ plus people in the community. And some of them did feel personally attacked. But it's like, you're also engaging in this open dialogue. So we have to be aware and just don't break the community guidelines and have these conversations. And a lot of the times they ended up really well. And while some people had to agree to disagree, some of them were able to kind of learn about new stuff that they didn't know about. And I think because of how consistent our language was and how quickly we opened up spaces to have these conversations, that people were able to respond in a more positive and engaging way. I love that. I think it's something we see often in communities is a type of conversation organically starts coming up in a space that could still be a healthy conversation, but it's different from you know, the, the expected purpose of the space and, and the, the knee jerk reaction, a lot of community builders and businesses have is to just try to shut down that conversation entirely, which we see happen a lot with this kind of like political discussion. But I think some of the best examples I've seen of making it work are when a community says, okay, like you want to talk about this, let's create a dedicated space specifically for that. Or if there's a group of people that you know are, are trying to use it in a different way or have a different vibe like give them their own dedicated space like you know reddit's a classic example where it was just one feed when it started and then people would ask questions on there instead of like share links or or posts and you know the the community kind of was like well this doesn't belong here and they had the decision to make of do we shut down that kind of conversation or do we create a dedicated space for it and then that's how ask reddit was formed, which is like led to like the AMA communities and just that was the first subreddit. And now there's like tens of thousands of subreddits. Um, But that was an example where they could have shut it down, but instead they just kind of like gave it its own dedicated space. And that ended up helping the community thrive. Yeah, absolutely. It's it says more about your community space to say, like, we're going to support you. The companies that try to run away from these conversations, I think, miss the part of the humanity of this. You know, you're going to have people who identify in these different spaces and you can't ignore it. So I always look at the companies who are silent and it's like, do you forget that you have black and brown and queer and all different vibes of people in your space? Like you can't ignore these conversations and companies that do are going to end up failing. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of companies these days that are saying like, well, yeah, we're just, we're a business, you know, we're going to stay focused on business. And it's just like, completely ignores the actual humans that are making your business work. And mm-hmm. oh, it's it's almost always a white person who is creating that policy, who's like not affected by these issues and not having to deal with it every day. So it's easy for them to say like, well, we're just going to keep that out of our business entirely when the truth is that's not an option for a lot of their employees. Yep, facts. It's, it still blows my mind whenever I go on Twitter and somebody posts about something that they personally have not experienced. And then we're like, nope, this is this is a whole thing. And they're like, oh, can you tell me about it? And then they get upset that you want to educate them. Like black and brown and POC people don't want to explain it to you because Google is a great tool. And they're just like, but we're just trying to learn. And it's like, again, research Google. Like you grew up in the time where your teachers made you do research papers. Like take that action and continue. Like the skills are there. It's yeah. I mean, having had, you know, I've learned that for myself. And now it's like anytime I have this question and I do Google it, there's literally like 23 articles with like the exact words of the question I'm trying to ask with like all these different perspectives of people who go deep because people of color have shared their experience and they have written about it and it's available. So you don't need to ask somebody every time you can do your own research and then maybe ask once you've like come with your research and you come with understanding Mm -hmm. that you've done the work yourself. Yep. Always, you know, my favorite phrase, always come with the receipts. Mm -hmm. You've done something. Mm -hmm. I like that. So a lot of communities, and community builders are now, for many of them for the first time, thinking about DEI and anti-racism and, and finally realizing that systemic racism really exists, which means it's definitely present in their communities if they haven't taken intentional action against it. What advice do you have for them to get started building more inclusive, more diverse communities? Yeah, if you're a company that actually rewind. I'm going to say the first step is always just talk to those people who are in your community and don't go in with questions around what's it like to be black? What's it like to be black in this space? What's miss? Go in and ask about issues that they're having and how you can resolve them and how you can work with them to 
resolve those issues? Or where did we miss the bar when X happened? What would you have liked to see from us? How can we support you? Type questions. And if you're a company that's lucky enough to have a DEI in your space, like you're big enough to have that team work with them on what can happen and what actions you can take, I think companies need to start showing a more human side to themselves. And that's going to be the thing because you're not going to corporate jargon your way out of being a racist. And that's what you got to do. You have to do the work to go out and learn what the actual issues are and then figure out how you're going to address it have company understanding of why this is important and that it's ingrained in your missions and policies. And then put programs together that support these communities and continue to support them, not just on a monthly basis, not just when it's Black History Month and not just when it's Pride. Like you have to do it consistently. And then again, showing the receipts and show what you've done. Every year, say where you were able to implement this new great thing, but also you struggled in this area and let people know that that's what you're working on. And also companies have a voice in politics. And I think companies need to stop trying to shy away and saying like business and politics are completely separate because they're not. Politics impacts business just as much as business affects politics. And companies need to show that they're paying attention to any new guidelines or laws or action steps that their local government and big government are doing and take a stand and take a very open stand, in my opinion. So I think those are big things. And um, with communities, it's kind of making sure that your voicing is consistent, that you are highlighting different types of voices, you're putting out multiple different types of content, and you're not just keeping it as like a homogenous space. You want to make sure that as you're bringing in different people, you're expanding to their networks. Like if you look at five of your community members and all five of your community members have basically the same experience, you're doing something wrong and you need to reach out to other people and go into new spaces to bring those people into the community space and then make sure you support them when you bring them there. Because otherwise that just takes away from their identity once again and imposter syndrome kicks in very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I love the question of uh, whose voices should be present here that aren't present here. That's always a, a useful framing for me to think about like, yeah, who do we have in this community and whose voices should be here but aren't here? And and why is that? And your point as well about consistent messaging, I think, is really relevant today because, you know, we saw the BLM protests and marches this year, and it kind of like took the internet by storm. Everyone changed their logos black and added Black Lives Matter uh, to their bios and like put out these big statements as companies and a lot of communities did make statements and like take action and do things that was when it was like you know completely encompassing the public dialogue and it was all over the media it was all over the internet it was impossible to avoid so those are the easiest times to say something and do something and take action and i wonder for everyone who's listening right now how many of you did something, you made a statement, you maybe added a new policy to your community. But now that, you know, things have like dissipated more, it's not like, you know, all encompassing media in the way it was, have you started to like lax your, um, your messaging, your communication? What were you, did you have a lot of communication at that point? And then is it kind of like fading now as your like logo, you go back to your original logo and Black Lives Matter, maybe is it still in your bio or not because it's not like the news of the day. Mm-hmm. And like, if you're starting to feel that now, then that's like actually a really important thing to become aware of because this is an example where taking action during a time like that is one thing, but consistently doing it day to day, month to month, when it isn't the popular thing to do, it isn't the the biggest thing on the news. How are you continuing to create new policies and keep pushing yourself to be better at this every month and build more inclusive communities? Yep. It's not just a one-stop shop. Everybody went and was like, we're going to do these one-time big donations, or we're going to feature these brands, or we're going to bring in these people to talk. But what happens once the hype fades? Mm-hmm. And that's the time when people have to be paying attention. Like we knew right after June happened that companies were going to forget. And then you started to see the posts on social media that said, hey, 
People are stopping talking about this. What are you still doing? How are you still holding this accountable? Don't expect your Black and POC friends to continue to push you to go and do this. It's your time now. And that's where companies have to be different. And I think accountability culture is coming in strong to hold those companies to the standard that they should be and making sure that it continues year-round. But communities have a huge influence on that. And I think we can leverage that way more as well. Absolutely. I think it's our responsibility. Like One thing that I've learned recently is that I, I think community and DEI are inextricably connected. You can't have one without the other because as soon as you decide to build a community, you are now creating a space with a set of social norms. And you have to make a decision. Do you want to perpetuate the existing norms or do you want to change them? And doing nothing is perpetuating it and is a decision in itself. So the extent to which you invest in DEI or don't is up to you. And it's and that's how we change, right? Like that's how we change society. It's like it might start with like one or two or three small spaces that do make underrepresented people feel like the default and feel included, but now those spaces exist. And then it turns into 10 spaces and it turns into a hundred spaces and it grows and grows until all of a sudden society just starts treating people differently because there are enough spaces that have kind of shifted the default. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. And last question on, on the moderation side of things. So like, what do you do when you're empowering members of your community to become moderators and leaders within your community to ensure that they are creating inclusive spaces in, in the groups that they're managing. Yeah, especially in her. I think people have this expectation that our moderators know anything and everything about the whole alphabet mafia, aka the LGBTQ plus IA, everything else. And that's just not the case. They're humans just like everyone else. So in Part of the things that we post during the week in the Facebook group, one of them was always making sure that they had an understanding of different identities and their experiences. I loved our group because we did have people who fell into those different identities. So then when somebody would come in and ask a question, they held them accountable and would point them out or call them out. And then somebody would get a little heated or say like, I'm not, I'm trying to do what's best. And then I jump in and say, but hear their side. Like that would just be my quip. I wouldn't even say like, stop having this conversation. I would jump in and be like, take a minute to understand what this person is saying. Like we had multiple trans women on our team. We had trans men. We had to learn lessons when we did have trans men on our team and how that could work. We had non-binary folks. And then we had people from all different ages and backgrounds from students to adults. And that was an education piece in itself. Also during onboarding, we had full definitions of every identity that we had inside of the app to make sure that our team knew what was available and to make sure that they understood each of the different definitions and each of the experiences. We would post in updated videos, any of our podcast stuff to the group to say like, hey, check this out. This is a thing that's happening. And we made sure that the moderator space was an open and safe space for them to come in and ask questions without having to get attacked. Sometimes it would happen. Sometimes it get a little toasty in there, but they were able to always like calm it down and work it out. And it was great to see because some of our older moderators would use old school language and we'd say, oh no, we've updated. We've updated. We're now saying this, you know, <laughs> like you can't, don't do that. <laughs> and we would take them through how and why, and they would always be open. And so that would always be a red flag if we ever saw people who were just like, oh, but this is how I do it. Then it's like, hey, then you're probably not right for our program. But we always left it open. So to take the TLDR of all of that, we had available information resources for them to access. We would update them on a regular basis of anything that we did inside the community and to learn about different identities. And then we kept it open for a conversation to open, like ask questions and get answers. Yeah, I love that. And and one just to point out, I think a really important lesson in that is a key to building diverse and inclusive communities is putting people of color, putting people from underrepresented groups in those positions of leadership as moderators because that's putting them in a position of power and and bringing their voices into it. So that that's like, you know, the default that that should be step 1. And then you can provide more education. You're not relying on them being DI experts because them being a person of color 
or person wanting to represent a group doesn't make them a DEI expert. Yes. I was like, say that again. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's all that what they expect is just to come through and be like, oh yeah, but you're black, so you know. You're and for me, especially because I have such an intersectional identity yeah. of being black, queer, and a woman. Yeah, they're just like, expert. yes, you know everything yeah. about women's rights <laughs> and gay rights and black people's rights and all that. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I experience these things, but I can't like list mm. everything. I'm not like born with all of that knowledge ingrained in me. Mm. And I'm still learning all the time too, but I'm also just aware that systemic racism is real and all these other things are real. And I don't need to question that. Like some people have the privilege to do. Awesome. Well, we are ready to move into our rapid fire question round. Everyone's favorite part of the show. Are you, yes. are you ready, Shana, for I think I'm ready. rapid fire questions and rapid fire answers? Let's do it. Number one, what's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? Okay. So I had this answer with both a community book and just a general book. General book, I definitely love Elaine Welteroff's book that she just came out with. Oh my God, I had the title earlier. I wrote it down. Elaine Welteroff's book or Gabrielle Union's book or Michelle Obama's book, Cheating, I said three. And then um, <laughs> and then for community books, I have turned to both Jono Bacon's People Powered and Carrie's Building Brand Communities, um, since I already mentioned Get Together earlier, but those are like great community books that I have personally read and I'm slowly growing my community library. So if there are more books that people suggest, I want them. Love it. Awesome. I'm looking up Elaine Walter Roth so we can include it. More Than Enough, Claiming Space for Who You Are. Yes. It's so good. Awesome. She's so good. It's so good. Just makes you feel like empowered in your space. Love it. I'm going to have to check out all of your six books that you recommend. It was supposed to be one, Gina. You said if I said it faster, that's then we true. can get more in there. That's, that's, I did not, that's my I did logic. Not specify. <laughs> if you speak really fast, you could literally, you could technically put as many words as you want in. Exactly. Okay. Next rapid fire question Who's an up and coming community builder or creator that you recommend we all follow? Mika Lejon, who runs uh, Two Swim. And it's like just this growing platform, but it's mainly, I think it's mainly around teens and building them into kind of like great community leaders, but it's so good. And the way that it's built out is so smart and it highlights just like LGBTQ plus POC teens and higher. And it's so good. And I think people are sleeping on what they're doing and we should highlight them. Love it. Awesome. Next question. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Seafood. That's a genre of food. I don't know if I could get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to like narrow, narrow, it would definitely be crab legs. I could eat crab, crab legs, legs all day. Yup. I mean, crab legs are delicious, but as the one food for the rest of your life? Yeah. I mean, the other option was French fries, but I felt like I'd be too fat off that. So I just... Well, if you're having the crab legs with the, the melted butter, then I don't know which one's healthier, but you can't have crab legs without the melted butter. Exactly. All right. Well, that's a good answer. Thank you. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? I like to set up scenarios and then ask people how they would respond to those scenarios. Like it, even just recently, or just like if this happened how would you respond to this? So we just did that for our podcast. Um, so I also do a podcast called Bad Queers. And one of the options was cool. Like I'm sick of seeing all of these LGBTQ plus films that are just around coming out. If you could see your favorite film, what would it be? What would it be about? That's not a coming out story for LGBTQ plus people. And the storylines were incredible. And all movies that I would totally want to watch and see. But I like seeing things where they can think outside of the box of like, all right, we've done enough of this. How can you do this? Or man, on this last day, I was totally the person that started the conversation. Are you a conversation starter? Or are you the one who waits? Why? And go from there. And then everybody kind of engages with other people or is like, oh my God, that's so me. You have phrased it better than I ever have. And those are the types of conversation starters I like to do. I love those. Yeah, th that touches on two that I like. So one is letting people be creative. So having them come up with storylines. I feel like if you can hit that right, people love to be creative, like, you know, seven word stories, or you see a lot of these examples online. Um, so people love to like be challenged to be creative. And then people love to identify 
<laughs> in some way or like in buckets. So that's, yeah, are you the conversation starter or not? That's like people love to identify with that kind of stuff, even as simple as like introvert, extrovert. Mm-hmm. People people love that content. So great suggestions. Okay, next question. What's your go-to self-care practice? Ooh, cleaning. Oh, yeah. I love cleaning. I clean. It's like, because I feel like I say, realistically, it's TV. Like I'll just go and sit and get lost in somebody else's storyline and not have to focus on anything that's happening in my life. But I feel like that's just avoiding and not really self-care. Same, yeah. So cleaning gets the job done because if my room is a mess, that means my life is a mess. So I got to clean my room so that my life can be back on track. Very cathartic. I recently got into um, macrame. I just made my first macrame. I saw that. I'm very impressed. Thank you. Me and arts and crafts are a hate-hate relationship. It's not hard. You okay? You say this, <laughs> and then when I make it, you'll have this is what I hoped for, and this is what it ended up being, and it'd be one of those like humorous threads that you find on Twitter, and that would be me. So then you have great community content anyway. So it's when. <laughs> <sighs> are you the type that can follow instructions in an art kit, or are you the type that? It shows up and it's a complete mess. See, it's, you get good content out of it. It's a solid mess. I'm the type that can follow instructions building something from Ikea. Okay. But I can't do it when it comes to arts and crafts projects. I'm going to send you my the macrame kit that I got and, and we'll see how it goes. All right. It's the same idea, like busy hands and lets, lets you just kind of like tediously create the same knot over and over and over again. It lets me like relax. It says like the thing. same knot over and over. I'm going to make eight <laughs> knots at minimum oh, and I think that it I messed mine up a hundred times. I had to go back, but hey, it's part of the process. Okay, next question. Um, if you could only choose one metric to use for the rest of your career to measure communities, what would that metric be? Okay, this one was kind of like where my cheating answer was because I like the the uh, participation framework that Jono has, where it's like you're taking the incentive incentivization rewards through their onboarding and journey within the community, and I like seeing people hit those rewards. I like seeing where they are on their community journey. And I don't know if that counts for measurements, but that's what I like. I like seeing when they hit rewards. <laughs> like, can you explain what that is? So it's like you just have like certain actions that members need to take or levels they need to hit to get a reward? Yeah. So it he breaks it down in two ways where it goes through like here are where you're going to hit it in the onboarding. So it's like an up ramp and you're like, here are steps one through six. And at each of those, you're going to accomplish something and it's going to be more like intrinsic rewards and you're like great 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 this person is moving through this onboarding process boom they've made it through now they have the next steps of becoming either like a casual regular or core member and in each of those they hit different intrinsic rewards and sometimes extrinsic like sometimes you get some swag sometimes you get a sticker but for the most part it's more driving factors to see people get more engaged with your community and having them do more actions. And so I like seeing like setting up those actions and then measuring where people fall on that. I will say rewards accomplished as your metric. I'll, yes. I'll let that one slide. I love it. Thank you. Appreciate you. Okay. I know it's so cheating. Like everybody's just like this and this, but it's like when I launch a community, I'm like, yes, I want to see how many people join. But then I'm like, if those people join and they don't do anything, that's boring. But if I'm like, yes, they're moving through the cycle. I can measure that. Everyone hates this question and they all cheat on it. So you're good. But that's why I love asking it. I follow the trend. I follow <laughs> the trend. Honestly, you can blame everybody else who was on this podcast before me <laughs> to do that. <laughs> okay, last couple of questions. Um, what's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Oh, any one of those, like the lesbian single ones. But there was one that I joined that was based out of Australia. And honestly, they were lit. I didn't. The questions that they had, the things that they would post. I would open it in the middle of my workday on like my big screen and coworkers would just turn and be like, what you doing over there? I'm like, look, I am <laughs> researching. I am researching because some of the stories that they would, they would post very suggestive photos. Some of the jokes, I was like, I've lived in Australia and I didn't understand them. And then I would look it up and be like, wow, this is fascinating. Um in this but yeah lesbian single groups are just a whole different breed of things that's i don't don't know if i'll ever be privy to that community so i'll take your word no it's okay (laughs) honestly it's safer it's safer to know yeah uh okay last question if you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world for how to live what would that advice be Take those unexpected chances and go with your gut. Mm. 
Why is that your advice? Honestly, from where I've gotten to here today, where I am, if it were like deathbed right now, everything that I have been able to have a really fun story about has been a part of my career, has been a part of like anything that I've done. Like looking back, I can stop and say like, how did you end up in Australia? How did you end up as a community manager? How did you end up dancing on TV with Ellen DeGeneres? Like all of these things were things that I was just like, no, has like very brief hesitation or no hesitation said, you know what, just do it. Just do it and go with it. And anytime that anything did not feel right, like if you actually listen to your gut, your gut is going to guide you in the direction you should. And each of the big decisions I made from switching from music therapy to going to work at her, to any of the moves that I've made, to living overseas, to the friends that I keep, all of that, if I actually listen to my gut, it has driven those decisions and I am not upset with any of them. And the same with like getting out of negative situations. I'm like, man, the times that I actually listened to my gut, they were right and I was much happier for it. So I think people need to take those just like unexpected chances of random phone calls from friends or calls from work places that you could do anything and just go with it and do it. Especially now, like if nobody's learned that in the last year where you're just like, you know what? Fuck it, do it. Like that would be it. That could be a condensed version of it. Just fuck it, do it. <laughs> do it. That's good life advice. Wait, you were, you danced on stage with Ellen DeGeneres? I danced on stage with Ellen DeGeneres twice. What? And I met Jennifer Hudson while I was there. What? I was part of her like 12 days of giveaways, but it was her 15th season. So I was there for day 14 of 15 of her giveaways and got to have a free trip to Mexico for a week with some of my best friends. And it was the best trip of Holy like shit. all time. Wow. I was like, my sunglasses, Ellen. I have a shirt. I have other things. All Ellen. Thanks, Ellen. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, we are at time. Shana, this is amazing. Uh, like I said in the beginning, you're someone that's just, it's been amazing to watch your journey and uh, Thank you. attention that you've brought to building your communities and the work that you did at her and kind of the standard you're setting for a lot of other community professionals. I mean, being as new as you are to the space, you've already, I think, taught so many people um, so many good things about scaling up their moderation programs and building inclusive communities. And I can only dream of all the amazing things you're going to continue to do in this space and all the other people who are going to get to benefit from those lessons. So just really grateful to have you building communities in this world. And thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah. Thanks, David. This is great. Awesome. Thanks everybody. We will see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoy this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.